0: You're listening to Stronger Than Chance, an audiobook by Philip Belashev. The house I speak of had a long stretch of sidewalk running beside it that was entirely unshaded, except for one tree that spread fan-like to cover as much as it could. This mattered more in summer than in winter. He was about one tree more tall, so was the man walking beside him though he judged his neighbor by a different bow. The tree had grown up alongside him, though not at the same speed. It had only recently begun to give this much shade. As a child, he had run under the tree's branches, and only truly noticed he was getting older when he hit his head on a branch that stretched out over the fence in front of it, and continued into the sidewalk to give fruit to passers by. The branches on the other side gave fruit to the house's new neighbor, to owners. They had been living there for a few years, but he still thought of them as just having moved in. If no one took the tree's fruit for a long time, it would get heavier and heavier, and more and more rotten, until a strong gust of wind forced it to fall wherever the branch's hold was weakest. That the tree bore grapefruits was something he had always found strange, but he had only recently understood why he felt that way. Why shouldn't it be grapefruit? Grapefruit was as good as apple or anything else. That was a nice thought, but untrue. Apple trees are more convenient and easier to care for. Apples can be taken out of the tree and eaten in hand, but with grapefruits... It's best to have a knife handy, or at least have nails you haven't cut for some time. The children of the town never took to either habit. When they took some grapefruit, they'd pick at it for however long it took to break through the skin. So why go to the trouble of caring for a grapefruit tree? A series of incidents made that tree part of many more lives than his. Kids ran under it as they raced each other down the street, gasping for air, hands on their hips or knees when they finished. As they grew older, some hit their heads on the branches they had never needed to duck from before and had the same realization he'd had. Then they became adults and children ran into them, just like they themselves had ran into people in their own childhood. When that happened, a moment of shocked silence came between them and the child as they realized what had happened. The child still likely disoriented, the adult trying to understand how anyone, even someone that young, could be so rude and careless. Well behaved children stayed to apologize and help those they had knocked over to their feet, while the others fled in whatever direction seemed best to them. The two groups dre- dressed differently each generation but their reactions were about the same. Some glared, irritated, wanting to swear, but knowing they shouldn't. The sternest of them took the child by the arm and looked for its parents, who were at home and ignorant of the whole situation. Once the adult realized this, they demanded an apology now rather than later, but children usually broke free from their grip before this. Others were more forgiving and let the children get on with their lives. He still thought of the tree in terms of these incidents, likely because he had both ran into people as a child, and, as of yesterday, had others run into him as an adult. He hadn't been carrying more than one package home, thankfully nothing fragile. The boy got to his feet quickly, once again racing, but this time to return the package to the man he'd wronged so he could be forgiven. Had that ever happened to the woman with the grapefruit tree? She used to gather fruit on her side of the fence. The fruit on the other side was for whoever wanted it. The the new owners had the same view, but more out of apathy than generosity. Now she had gone away, and although she had made a big fuss of where she was going, he couldn't remember. Some place with palm trees instead of whatever kind the park was filled with. What were they? Oak? The leaves were what you'd expect, round ovals except for the pointed end. Anyway, the fruit on her side of the fence now belonged to the birds. He was just as unsure that her name was Cheryl, but for the lack of another name, he decided it was. When she left, the town threw a farewell party, bigger than he had thought it would be. He had attended, though as a boy he didn't have the words to say what he, had, what he felt. As a man, he had the words, but no longer the feeling he had wanted to use them for. Although nobody had planned a speech, the general consensus among guests was that the occasion warranted one. There was no podium, so Cheryl stood up and began to speak in the middle of the crowd. He didn't remember anything she said except for this. Time and coincidence had separated them, but only physically. That was the gist of what she improvised. The rest was reminiscing on events he had forgotten, and even then hadn't found important, when she had been a far larger figure in his life than now. All that remained of her in his memory was that, quote, her face, the tree, and the grapefruit. Not much at all for so many years. She found the whole speech silly, with all the talk of time and coincidence. Words she said with such gravity you could hear the capital letters. It was what the crowd wanted, and she obliged. He took what she said to heart, swearing that neither force would come between them, between him and a friend again. Back then, he thought of everyone who did him even the smallest kindness as a friend, including her. Now it was his turn to feel silly, years later. That had been a thin kind of love, weak and general, "'more of an attitude towards the world and everyone in it than a relationship. "'He hadn't really known her. "'They had seen each other many times, but just long enough to say hello "'or for him to take grapefruit off the tree and press it into someone's hand. "'His or another child or an adult's, speaking to them all in the same cheery way. "'It's hardly work,' she'd say, when people try to refuse her gifts.' That seemed to be true. Sometimes he saw her tend to the tree, but never with enough effort to make her sweat or get dirt anywhere. True to his promise, he kept in touch with all his old friends, doing so with such diligence that he could trace an almost unbroken line of regular meetings, or barring that, phone calls, through the calendar he used to track all this. The exact day varied. They talked no more than twice a month. He wasn't unreasonable. It would be rude to call without anything to say. It would be uncomfortable to listen to someone's monologue because he had nothing to say. As he saw it, being born in the same town had brought him and his friends together. They had befriended each other easily and then the following years tested these bonds. When they were younger, friendships changed quickly and openly. Instead of meetings and calls becoming rarer and rarer because before they stopped entirely, they announced who they did and didn't like, changing their minds in five minutes or less. Some friendships ended just as they were beginning to think of themselves as adults. He understood why. If what kept people together is only the coincidence of having If what keeps people together is only the coincidence of having met, then their bond can be easily overcome. A meeting there, an opportunity there, repeat a few times, and the numbers were far fewer. He did his part to keep his friends, and they did their part to keep him. Of course, he wasn't bound to his hometown, though that didn't stop his friends from saying so. Pride for a town was fine, but he wasn't about to limit himself for the sake of something some woman had said long ago. He explained this system of forces to all his friends at one point or another, when he had nothing else to say. They didn't know what to make of it. It was probably true, they said. Then they excused themselves. It was getting late. Their assurance was nice, but unneeded. He had confidence in his relationships. Even them hanging up didn't make him doubt himself. It usually was late when they stopped talking, whether he was at home or in a hotel, whichever his job demanded of him. Besides, the longer a friendship went on, the harder it was to end it. His friends weren't cowards. They could admit when they didn't like someone. He was sure he could, too, although he didn't have much practice. Even as a boy, he wasn't the type to end a friendship over something he could forgive. He'd rarely had a reason to end anything. After all the friends he had seen go, it impressed him that he had managed to hold on to as many as he had. Since childhood, he had tried to keep his friends by him, but he never fooled himself about who was and wasn't his friend. When someone disliked him, he let them go. Luckily, the others in his circle would usually decide to shun that person at about the same time. He was by no means harsh about this. If he didn't like the friend of a friend, that was his right, but no reason for him to interfere. Whenever he felt anything but ease about such a situation, he asked himself how he would like it if someone messed with his affairs like that. That put it to rest. This system he had worked out was the product of months of thought. He understood more about the relationships he saw than before, but didn't apply his theory immediately. If he wanted, he could figure out the forces at work in a given situation, but he wasn't anyone's therapist. His theory was the result of what one woman had said and more than enough time to think about it maybe more than was healthy. No, there was no danger in inventing strange ideas for his own amusement and education. His friends had theories of their own, which they shared with him. He was more courteous and always listened, accommodating but not spineless. He respected himself just as he respected others, whether they were perfect strangers or close friends. His friends noticed the effort he put in and took after him, but by the time they got around to sharing these speculations, both the speaker and those listening were hardly paying attention to anyone but themselves. Like his own system of friendship, their theories weren't scientific, though some pretended to be, talking about what they had observed only once, as if they could assume it was always that way. Some gave up on reasoning entirely, Simon, they would say, when you live for a couple years, you notice these things. I can't prove it, but I don't have to. Whenever his friends said that, he had to stop himself from laughing and pointing out they were about the same age. Julie and March especially tried to cultivate an air of experience. Simon had none of their delusions. He had his own. He had just returned from half a year of staying in hotels, "'a period longer than any previous trip. "'For that reason, he enjoyed his walk around these familiar streets "'more for the exercise of it than any memories they might evoke. "'After work in a foreign country, and with lingering jet lag, no less, "'he had been too tired for intelligent conversation. "'His friends dumped themselves down for him. "'Calling a friend from a hotel has certain advantages.' You know about if you've done it yourself. You can do something else while the two of you talk, and they won't find it rude. Simon ate his dinner over the course of these evening conversations. When else would he have the time? He didn't know what else his family, his friends did when they talked. An observation Simon wanted some day to develop into a theory was that hotels were largely the same. That was a comfort when you traveled as much as he did. There was no need to accustom himself to anything more than the world outside the hotel, when almost everything inside was like his last hotel. Everything except what what language the service addressed him with. English with an accent, different each time. What did this amount to? He didn't know. As a businessman, He could go wherever he wanted, even places in whole countries where women were second-class citizens. Although he disliked the arrangement, he didn't participate in it, and so he didn't see himself as part of the society he observed, not even temporarily. Someone had once said that the past was a different country. In those countries, that was also true in reverse. Regardless of where he went, He returned from his travels with stories to tell and gifts to give. Time in his hometown grounded him, as did finally seeing his friends' faces along with hearing their voices. They and the grapefruit tree helped him more than he ever thought possible before he first left them. When Simon returned from a trip, he met his friends someplace quiet, where the only sound was their conversation, and there was nobody to shush them. He gave his gifts without much presentation. His friends smiled and called him names like Our Little Traveler between his long monologues. The first was about where he got his gifts. To say it wasn't much or to excuse himself for it in some other way was dishonest. There was no need for false modesty. He knew his gifts were cheap, Even with the markup shopkeepers added to the price, because he was rich and foreign. Though he took to haggling with pleasure, and once home, wished people there wouldn't stick so closely to their prices, the shopkeepers always made a profit. Once he had explained the thought behind his presents, he handed them over. He bought masks, beads, jewelry, and whatever else he could fit into his luggage, and thought his friends would share his interest in, though never clothes. It would be too much of a hassle if it didn't fit them. He didn't buy such clothes for himself either. On him, they would look like a costume, especially compared to people who looked like they should be wearing it. His gifts filled his friend's bookshelves, desks, and tables, seeming just as out of place there as they had in the hotel he had kept them in before returning home. Keeping them on display like that gave Simon another chance to explain how he got them whenever he visited. This gift given was largely one-sided. His friends used to try their hardest to correct this imbalance when holidays came around, though they rarely, if ever, succeeded. They never admitted why they tried, but Simon could easily guess. When the time seemed right, he told them all all they had more more than they needed. He told them they all had more than they needed. Why fret about such a small difference? His friends agreed, and this put their unease to rest. In In situations like these, he thought it best to clear up misunderstandings before they happened, before the feelings in question were even said aloud. Then Simon began his second monologue about where what he'd done besides gift-getting. He was there for a job, but when he traveled from hotel to office or anywhere else, he saw what tourists call the authentic life of the country, whether he wanted to or not. Robberies were more frequent abroad than at home. Soft-hearted and with a body to match, he let kids who looked like beggars steal a couple dollars from the jacket pocket he left open for them, but never his whole wallet, as opposed to its former place in his back pocket. Or, no, damn, but never his whole wallet. That was too far. If a kid made a sudden move towards the inside of his jacket, where he had taken to carrying his wallet, as opposed to its former place in his back pocket, he smacked them away, but not if they were carrying a knife, or at least said they were. He had to watch which taxi he chose, too. He told himself that the most he had to fear was being overcharged, but no, the most he had to fear was abduction, ending at best in ransom and at worst in death. None of these fears ever came true, but he avoided taxis anyway, taking them only when strictly necessary. That meant when he had to go somewhere no buses went and which was too far away to reach both on foot and on time. Every experience he had during his travels was filed under that country's name with little regard for for the particular region or town he was in, mostly the capital or other big cities. He had heard Moscow was a place unto itself, with its own culture and people. Maybe so, to prove that, he would have had to see the rest of Russia. Simon was open about his limits. He didn't know any Russian so instead of street signs, he had to rely on his phone's map and feel like that, the directions people gave him in their best English. That wasn't much. Even the woman at the hotel desk still put it, pulled his name apart into separate syllables. She said Simon, no matter how many times he corrected her. Then she'd blush and apologize, and he would feel petty for caring about his name. They all did their best, And that's all he wanted. This gave him faith in Moscow's citizens, a feeling he tried to extend towards everyone during his travels, most of the time successfully. If he'd had more time, he was sure he could have become friends with some of the kind strangers. He had six months, too little to do do everything he had planned. As for the strangers themselves, they had their own plans, He didn't mean to pass judgment, good or bad, on everyone there. He knew he was in no position to do that, and believed nobody had that right. Much to his friends' disappointment. They wanted to hear how Russia was, not just the beauty of the basilica and the character of the landscape, but also the character of the people, a question Simon found next to impossible to answer. He could explain what he had seen but not the feeling that had come over him while doing so he never saw so much snow in one place and would laugh to himself in a way he knew looked strange to everyone around him but which he could still but which he still couldn't help amazed at how vibrant how much brighter colors looked when put against white even the little touches of snow on the basilica dome were enough to provide this contrast Still, there were details he could impress his friends with, things they knew, but which he made more real to them than they could be as abstract truths. A few dollars, once you took them to the currency exchange office, became many colorful rubles. Many dollars became many more rubles. He kept both currencies on him, stable dollars as a reserve, and rubles for everyday expenses. The company paid for his plane and train tickets, his food and drink and shelter, everything but recreation, so he wasn't able to spend much. He spent his time in Moscow between seasons, arriving in winter, somehow colder than he expected, though he brought his heaviest coat, and leaving in spring, whose heat he hadn't considered possible. Russia, to him, was a country with four winters that varied in their amount of snow. In a way, that was true. First snow hit the grass, and then, in the three or so weeks before he left, the grass poked above the snow. He left with some souvenir nesting dolls, a few words of Russian, yes, no, please, thank you, and for directions left and right, although most people pointed with their fingers, and photos he had looked at once shortly after taking them, and would never look at again. He distributed these among his friends. Whoever wanted one got one. They got more if they were leftovers. He did the same with his stories. If if someone was busy, Simon didn't take it personally, but went, went ahead talking about his travels to those who could listen. Simon told his friends about the robberies, even that he let them happen, not at all embarrassed. He could have made up a story, said the kids looked starved, mentioned thin little hands, but no, they probably wanted the money for something other than food. He let them have it anyway. His friends asked if it was guilt that made them do this. He said he was just being charitable. His friends called it a strange form of charity. They knew what Simon was like, and this was just another example of it. They were open with each other, and so there were few surprises. At home, Simon was more likely to hand beggars money, because they were less aggressive. His friends had no choice but to believe him. Whether they were safe or dangerous, he found foreign countries eventful, not like his hometown. It was small, with barely a hundred years behind it in which to make a culture. How could it compete against older and larger towns and cities by being what they weren't, safe and boring? I've said so much about Simon, but I don't mean to imply that his friends sat there in silence or that their relationship was as one-sided in terms of conversation as it was in gifts. When his friends talked about her, Their own lives at these meetings, they could see Simon listened with earnest interest. Over the phone, they couldn't. Even when he was tired and still recovering from his journey back home, they knew this interest was there by the light in his eyes. Dim as it was, it would be brighter tomorrow and more so the day after that. His friends repeated some of what they had said before over the phone but to hear even old news in person was fantastic because he could now see the feeling in their words on their faces. His friends never travelled anywhere outside of the country, even for their occasional visits, but they told stories of their journeys just like Simon did. Simon, in turn, paid them the same respect they paid him. All his time away meant that his hometown was as foreign to him "'as the countries he had visited. "'No, not exactly. "'He had memories of his hometown, "'but before he set foot in a foreign country, "'he knew only what he had heard and read about it. "'There was nothing for him to remember. "'There's enough variety in some countries "'to pretend you're somewhere else. "'A snowy street can be almost anywhere "'a certain distance from the equator. "'A flea market has souvenirs.' If his friends went to one, and were lucky, they might find some of the gifts Simon had bought for them. Still, they didn't want to imitate him. They could tell him about his home like he told them about his travels. Better yet, they could show him these places. They had their own stories to tell, most often things their children had said. Julian took a nesting doll home. His son, Albie, who would become Albert when he was older, asked his father where he got them. At least, that's what Julian thought he meant by his pointing. From Simon. Do you remember him? He went to Russia on a business trip. Alby shook his head. He was just old enough to use his words. In fact, his English was as good as Simon's Russian, but he preferred the emphasis of movement. Julian gave him the doll and showed him how the smaller figures nested in the larger figures. Alby took it apart and put it back together a few times, as if to show Julian he had understood. The next time Simon visited Julian, it seemed Alby had chipped the doll's paint while playing with it. Julian saw Simon look at it and simply said, Ah, that was my son. Simon gave him another doll on his visit after that. He asked Alby if he knew who he was. He nodded. Was that his answer, or was he just happy to have out the gift? He turned to Julian for help he couldn't give. What does it matter, Julian said. He's happy. If he didn't know you before, he does now. The forces keeping Simon and his friends together grew in strength and in number with every year Simon left and returned with stories and souvenirs. But every time they met it, after a prolonged absence, that their phone calls had made easier to bear. Some time ago, he had asked his friends whether they remembered Cheryl. Did they remember her grapefruit tree or her farewell speech? Some said no. Others shook their heads. Still others said nothing, and by abstaining, let themselves be counted among the opinion of the majority. Nobody said yes. He explained who Cheryl was, and that she might have a different name than the one he remembered. The idea of finding Cheryl had entered his mind more than once. He had entertained it, but not for longer than a few minutes. That's about as long as they talked about Cheryl and where she might have gone. Then he'd made himself laugh with the thought of actually finding her, her while on a business trip. The two of them would exchange shocked looks, each asking themselves whether it could be who they thought it was. Then they'd run towards each other, and what? Embrace? He had explained the reason for his sudden laughter to his friends. They joined in, whether because they found it funny or because they had understood what Simon meant. But nobody laughed as loudly as him. They talked about the grapefruit tree, talking around her, but not saying much about her. Then they moved on to other subjects. There's only so much you can say about someone you lost touch with. That was the last time they talked about Cheryl. They soon met again. It seemed, though it wasn't so, that all his friends had at least one child. Little Charlie and his big sister Susan, and so on and so on. Those that had them brought them up in conversation, Those that didn't either listened or else said something to politely indicate disinterest. More stories followed, and more after that, but eventually everyone had said all they had to say and had heard all they wanted to hear. Besides, it was late. They agreed to meet again three days from now, or failing that, a little sooner or later. Phone calls demand you have something to say, but now that they were back home... They could spend the day not telling stories of what they had done, but doing it together. That was Stronger Than Chance, an audiobook by Philip Elisha. Remember to like, share, and subscribe, and if you want to read the stories in text, you can also check out my blog, uh, which I'll have linked to in the description.